Hi, this is Grief Hi. Side Hustle, the podcast, and I am here with Lindsay Mead Russell. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate having you here. I'm going to tell everyone just a little bit about you. You sent me a bio and bios are excruciating things to sit through. Lindsay Mead is a mother, writer, and financial services professional who lives in the Boston area with her family. Her writing has been anthologized and published in a wide variety of print and online sources. She's been writing about her daughter and son, who are now 18 and 16 since they were very small. She graduated with a degree in English from Princeton and received an MBA from Harvard Business School. I will confess to everybody that Lindsay and I have known each other since we were youngins in high school. We went to high school together and we have lots of connections in grief and loss. So Lindsay, thanks for being here. Thank you. So a couple of things. One is just to remind listeners that we are going to be talking about grief and loss today, but we're not doing a trauma therapy session. You're not going to see me ask Lindsay about all the nitty gritty details um, about the terrible things that happened, both out of respect for her story, but also because that's not what we do. We don't want to trigger all the details and all the small earthquakes that can happen in our lives when we talk about loss. Part of the reason I say that to the listeners is to just remind people there are responsible ways to talk about loss that won't leave you shaking and crying for the whole rest of the day. Lindsay, will you tell us a little bit about the loss that you want to talk to me about today? Yes, I will. So it really started in the summer of 2017. My daughter was getting ready to go to boarding school, and that's where Megan and I met at a different boarding school, but I was really struggling with uh, her leaving. It sent me back into therapy. It sent me back to medication. I was really anxious about her leaving, even though I knew it was the right thing, and it was. She left, and two weeks later, my father-in-law died. My husband's father had been very ill and received a heart transplant in 2002, on Grace's one month anniversary, and that's why her name is Grace. We were pregnant with her unexpectedly as his father was dying and then received a life-saving heart transplant. He then received a stem cell transplant and a kidney transplant, and all these things happened throughout Grace's. She was super close to him, and he died quite unexpectedly in the fall of 2017. We thought at the time it was a sudden death. He had been diagnosed with cancer, which is very common with long-term transplant patients, but I didn't know that obviously because of the long-term use of immune suppression drugs susceptible to certain types of cancer. So he had been given a diagnosis over the summer and he had treatment plans, which were obviously different because of the transplants. But uh, on a Tuesday night, he was told that it was in his lungs and there was nothing they could do, but he probably had months to, to die and he died on Friday. So it was super fast. Um, and I said to him and my husband was devastated. And that all happened in September of 2017. Our daughter had been in school three weeks. Then his funeral happened and my family came and my dad got up and spoke. And it was this incredibly moving moment. My father wrote a note to my daughter about being her only remaining grandfather. I have this email still. He was aware of this responsibility and then in November of 2017, my parents always hosted Thanksgiving for about 30 people at their second home, which is in Mary, Massachusetts. He was totally fine. We took family pictures. That was Thursday. On Sunday, my parents were coming over for dinner. I set the table in the morning and my mother called me in the afternoon that my dad had died. So that was the other, obviously more substantial trauma for me. So that is the, the, the loss we're talking about in my daughter and obviously at boarding school, our son was at a school as well. So it was a really back-to-back losses. And it was only two months later or so that I realized 
that this is how far out Matt had been from his father's death when my dad died. It just really all happened. So that was in November of 2017. I can feel all that in my body. It's a lot. What were those early days? What were those yeah. early days for you? So, yeah, it's a great question. I think about it a lot. And when you emailed me, I, I obviously been reflecting on it. So it was Sunday after Thanksgiving. My daughter was home from boarding school because she'd been home for Thanksgiving. The quick story, my dad went running, which he still did. He still worked full time. He was 74. He was very healthy and had just been to the doctor and he had a heart attack and died suddenly. So we don't know exactly um, what happened, but that was Sunday afternoon. My memory of that day, it's a weird combination of blurry and specific. So my mother was really freaked out, obviously. My dad was a twin and my husband is a twin. I had to call his twin. I had to call my sister. I had to call his other remaining brother. So I, those phone calls were really pretty traumatic for me. When somebody dies, there's so much you have to do. So like, I remember, you know, calling to cancel his flights and calling to cancel his cell phone. There was just a lot of logistics. And then also obviously the funeral. So I remember those first few days I was numb and we were just really focused on getting to the funeral. My sister flew up. She lives in Delaware. We live in Boston. It's funny. The day itself is crystalline in my memory. It's even more specific than that. We played tennis as a family and I was driving home from the tennis courts with the kids and we drove by my dad running and I saw him out of the corner of my eye and I pulled over and I had this really weird feeling. He obviously had gone home and had and died. There's nothing I could have done, but for a long time, I punished myself with what if I'd stopped what if I'd gone there and he'd had a heart attack in front of me and I could have saved him? You know, I mean, you can't, can't play that game. So that day itself is really vivid. But then the weeks after are a little blurrier. The other thing I remember is it wasn't, so that was late November. The holidays were sort of a blur and it was, you know, sad. So my husband is a twin. His dad had just died. His twin's wife, who's a very close special friend of mine, her father died one year before my dad on the same day so that morning I had sent her a text saying I'm so sorry this is a sad day which is crazy to consider that so anyway at Christmas we have three widows all of whom had lost what I remember is in February suddenly being just swamped and I realized that I had been numb to it because I was so worried about my mom yeah I didn't let my own sadness in until I knew she was okay. The winter actually is even blurrier, I hardly remember. And I think it's because I was just so overcome. It took me a while to realize why I was so sad months after. You mentioned a, a dozen things that tend to be true for people who have sudden loss, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's that almost relief that there's something that needs your attention, something yeah. to doing in the beginning that you have murky underwater memories and very specific memories. And it turns out, and I do a little class in this, that that actually has to do with how your brain is coding memory at that time. It's totally fascinating. There's part of your brain that codes memory in a typical way that reverberates differently after traumatic loss because your amygdala enlarges. Yeah. It's like literally a physical reaction. Yeah, it's literally a physical reaction. And a lot of grievers find a lot of comfort in learning. There's a reason your sleep is fucked up. There's a reason that your hunger and your satiation, these tools that are in your hippocampus and your hypothalamus and your thalamus 
that are impacted by the shock of it, which is your amygdala, which is that part in the back of your brain. You gave a really nice example of like, my memory was weird. What people often have is they behaved really crazy. They ate their dinner out of the dog dish, or they went out in a weird outfit or something that is clear that they weren't thinking straight. And again, it's because in sudden loss, you're, you react in a certain way that your, your brain is not getting messages from the back, the brainstem to the frontal lobe where you do your thinking. People have a lot of shame or a lot of energy about how they behaved or what they thought. And it's, no, no, your brain is not working right. And it can take a while. Yeah. And, and another thing that you described was in February. So it's several months later that you start to deepen into your own feelings and feel your own feelings. Our body has all this protective stuff, including adrenaline, which it sends to keep you from being overwhelmed. And it takes a while. Adrenaline is metabolized more quickly than a month. It takes a while for your body to essentially feel itself again. And when you think about evolutionary processes, like that makes sense. If a wild animal is attacking our tent, we don't want to sit there and feel terrible. We need to run and then feel. Can you say a little bit more when you pulled over, you had a weird sensation in your body about your. Yeah. Yeah, And I, I still think about that and I don't know what it is. I don't think it's in retrospect. I'm making it up because my kids were in the car and they were both like, are you, my kids are teenagers. They're not little, but they were like, are you okay? My mother still lives a mile from us. So we used to see them all the time. So it was not that unusual to drive by him running or see them around. I just had this very weird foreboding sense. And I had just seen him on Thanksgiving. And so, and they were coming for dinner. So it wasn't like there was any reason I would feel that way. Yeah. But I really remember it. So there are a lot of those stories as well. So I 100% believe our bodies have two different sides in their brain, the right brain and the left brain. And the left brain is where we do all our thinking and most of us spend our time. But the right brain is this very intuitive side. Mm-hmm. which knows things that you can't really know. And it's also our instinctive side. It's where the fight, flight and feign death and all that stuff come from. But I, and I can't remember if I ever shared this with you that the day that my mom died, she had been ill. I drove to Boston to pick up a cousin in Boston. And when I drove into the sort of driveway area and turned the car off, I had a sensation of my water breaking, even though I obviously was not pregnant, but I had a whooshing through my system that was so akin to what it feels like to have your water break that I looked down expecting there to be water. And then I had a thought that was just clear as a bell, which was she's dead. And I called my husband to go into her room and she was dead. My youngest son, 10 days before we went up to the Cape to see her, he had been in England with his dad. All three of my kids had been there while I was in Maine with my mom. And Nicholas, my youngest, wasn't sleeping. And he was telling dad that he couldn't sleep because he was worried that when he went to bed, someone that he loved was going to die. And the day, you know, kids say crazy things. They don't mean to, but the day that my mom died and I was putting him to bed, he said, my stomach feels better. I think it just must've been that Nana was going to die. And I, I have collected hundreds of stories from people that are similar to that. I said this in another podcast, you know, I don't know where I land on heaven and all that stuff. But I definitely, I know that, I know that we're energy, right? Like I know from a physics sense that we're energy 
And so I actually think I really do believe in the spiritual concept you can detect energy as it's shifting and changing. Yeah. yeah. That's sort of how I explain some of that. Yeah. Yeah. How did, once you got to February, what was February like for you? Cause it sounds like in some ways that was harder. Was that more crying? What did grief look like? I mean, there was a lot of crying. There were a lot of coincidences, things that felt very charged. And before February as well, my dad and I had always talked a lot about poetry and about writing. And he'd been a very loyal and fierce advocate of my writing, which is wonderful. For example, he had always been very clear that he wanted to pull the Tennyson called Cross in the Bar at his funeral. The morning of his funeral, my husband and I went for a walk as the sun was rising at our home in Marion. And I shared a picture of the harbor on Instagram with another Tennyson quote from a poem called Ulysses to strive to seek to find an audio. That day at the funeral, one of his sailing buddies got up as they lowered the flag and he quoted the same thing. So that gave me shivers. He died in his office, which is where he spent most of his time. And about a month after he died, one of the very real and also charming things she hadn't realized he'd been doing, one of them was changing lightbulbs. So she was like, I need this light bulb replaced. Can that, who's my husband, help do it? And we didn't get around to it. And a week later, she said, oh, it's back on. I found a business card of his in our car, which he'd never been in. So there were a lot of things like that, which I don't know how I feel about having either. I really don't. But things like that helped me a little bit. And, and they still happen. My dad loved owls. And he had a bunch of owls in his office. I've seen owls a few times. So stuff like that, I find deeply reassuring. And I'm sure people said this to you. Oh, and I'm sure John, which is my father-in-law and your dad are having a drink in heaven. I want so badly to believe that. And I just don't know that I do. But when I see things like the owls or I find his business card or the light bulb goes back on, there's a part of me on some level, I feel connected to him. And I don't know that I'm so specific as to say, I think he's still there. I don't know that it's that tangible, but it does make me feel connected to him. I was really fixated on where did he go? I know. Where is he? And I remember, this is one of those strange things that when your husband has just lost his dad, he can have an opinion on this. He was like, you have to see his body. And I was like, that's creepy as hell. I don't want to see his body. And when I arrived at my mom's house or my parents' house, he was still there on the floor at his office. And I didn't go in. I was like, I don't want to see that. I won't ever be able to unsee it. But Matt, my husband, said, you really need to go see him at the funeral home. I've never seen a dead body before. I don't want to see him. But he said, I really think you're going to find it comforting. You should go. And we went. It was really wonderful to see him. Seeing him, he felt like himself, but it was clear he wasn't there. And that, on some level, that's, I don't know what, it's, it's reassuring or comforting or neither, but it was like, oh, okay, there he's somewhere else now. I just don't know where. And I, I still, I don't know. I think about how the brain has to update itself over and over. Both the months after my dad died, probably three or four months. And for my mom, it may have been closer to a year. Every night I would say, I just can't believe she died. Yeah. It's not that I didn't know that she died. Yeah. I knew she died. I, I, I wasn't not in reality. It's that I couldn't believe it. I was with my dad when he died. I mean, not the minute he died. I was oddly out of the room. I sat with my mother's body and prayed over her body after she died. I think there's possibility because I had so many images in my PTSD of her dead body that it could have maybe not been great, 
But I also can't imagine when I think about my siblings who didn't get a chance to see her body. I can't imagine that for me. I just don't think that would have worked for me. It's tragic because you and Matt were in the same space at the same time. But I think there's a lot of like, what do you do to show up for a griever? How do you help them? But I think our goal is to learn how to carry the grief. Yeah. You know? And so to have yeah. someone say, I know you, I think you need to do this. I think mm-hmm. it would be good for you. I think, yeah. I think that's the coaching that we need, right? Part of the reason I think it's important for people to tell stories, for people to talk about this, because if I hear your story and I have a strong, oh my God, I would never do that. That's, that's good information. If I hear your story and think, huh, I hadn't thought about, would it be important for me to visit the body? Maybe. Yeah. I would. That's important information. Yeah. Was there room for it at the time in your relationship to talk to each other? Was it hard to talk to each other because you each had your own processes? It was interesting. Everybody was like, it must be so hard that you can't turn to each other. And honestly, it was the opposite. We were so grateful. I would say we had different reactions and our dads were very different. And it's three and a half years out now. Every few months I say to him, do you you hear your dad in your head and he doesn't and I do it's not that our experiences are the same but for us it was definitely a place we were able to really bond and I did not feel that he wasn't there and I don't think he would say I wasn't there it was a radical degree of empathy everybody's loss is different and one of the things that's complicated is just because you lost your dad doesn't mean x y and z about the relationship with your dad when my dad was dying of cancer which was a year-long process we probably had a better year in our relationship than we'd ever had before there was a lot that just sort of got dropped between us so that I could show up for his death And I have five brothers and sisters, as you know, but they were not necessarily the people that, even though we're intimate and connected in lots of things, I didn't spend a lot of time talking to them about their experiences with death. I had a friend who had lost her dad and we ended up walking and talking and being able to share about those experiences Matt is an obvious example because he's right there and he has primary loss that he can at least relate to your experience. Were there other people that showed up in any particular ways? Yeah, I think I had six friends from college at my dad's funeral. They surprised me. I had no idea. We had it outside at our yacht club, which has a screened in porch. It was cold. Everybody's wearing their coats. And we were outside on the porch and the six of us, I guess, I was the sixth. We're standing around in a circle with our heads bowed. And I realized that five of six of us had lost our dads in the last 12 months. I felt very supported. And with people who had just been through it, it's a statement of where we are in life, right? This is only going to continue, right? There are people who show up and people who don't. Yeah. Both of them are surprising and telling. And there was one person in particular who's a very dear friend who I love dearly, who wrote me this long note all about how lucky I was to have a dad like that and how she would love to have had a dad as supportive as my dad was. And I know now that it had nothing to do with me. It was about her, right? But in the moment, I was like, this is not about you. What are you doing, you know? But I also realized she was not able to be there for me because of her own stuff with her dad, which has nothing to do with me. And it doesn't make her a less loving, wonderful person. And there were people who just didn't show up. The lesson for me is just show up. 
Don't ask what you can do. Just bring something. I remember a friend of my mom showed up one morning at 7.30 with bagels and green. We were all in our pajamas because I was sleeping there. And she showed up. She walked into the kitchen and she left. She didn't say anything. That to me is the example versus all the people who were emailing us. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And I was like, I have no idea what you can do. Right. One of my best friends drove out to Deerfield to get our daughter and then brought her to the funeral, which was like not on the way from Boston, but didn't even yeah. hesitate. Or just the people who would send a text, I'm thinking about you. And nobody can solve it. I think for me, one of the lessons, and this is not just true for you, but it's true in life as parent for sure. It's not about trying to fix the problem. It's just witnessing it. Yeah. The people who would say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking, I thought of your dad today. Somebody just this week said Prince Philip's funeral, they played one of the hymns that they played at my dad's funeral, which is the, the Navy hymn. Yep. Somebody texted me and said things like that that mean so much. And to me, that's for me the lesson. It's been three and a half years since dad died. Probably at least 10, maybe 15 people have said to me, oh, I have a friend whose dad just died. I have a friend whose mom just died. Can you talk to her? Can you talk yeah. to him? This woman that I don't even know that well from work, who I think is wonderful. She texted me three months ago. My dad died and stuff they just time. I think people just want to relate to people who been there and I think that's why that moment at my dad's bar I realized we'd all been through this together one was Gloria was really powerful the woman that you didn't know that well reaching out from work I, I there is this native tongue once yeah. you real loss I come from that culture I always say it's like native Portuguese it's like I, we speak Portuguese now not everyone speaks that language many people think they kind of understand it because they speak Spanish but like yeah, you know, between a native speaker I think there's a different level of confidence when I have lived through this, I'm living through it. I, I'm going to just show up. What I always say is just go closer, look mm -hmm. from a closer, because I think there are some people who wouldn't want you. I mean, my mom was not a huge fan when my dad died of people coming over with flowers. She, she was very old school and private. And, but what is worse, I think, is if you wish people were coming over and, and were, yeah. Because you're left, you don't have a choice with the fear that people don't care enough to show up. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you can tell yourself all kinds of stories and that doubles down. My mom was deeply religious. And so many in her community would say, oh, you know, she's in heaven or she's looking down on you. And for whatever reason, I mean, I have a very different perspective now, you know, almost two years out from her death, but the, it would make me angry. Like that makes you feel better. And anger is really normal. I think anger kind of shows up first and then behind it is sorrow. So sometimes you have like a little, you know, pugilist, a little boxer who doesn't want you to have to feel the sadness. But I would say to these little old ladies, listen, I don't really believe in heaven. I know you mean well, but tell me a story I don't know about my mom. I know I want to feel good. You want to feel good. And not everybody can do that. But I think what happens if you don't, have anyone trying with you is that it feels as though this unbelievably earth shattering thing that's happened. Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. It's not enough to sort of garner anyone's attention. Most of us have people who showed up in ways that just were mind boggling. You have to sort of grow into grieving. You have to grow the muscles to carry the grief. You also can grow into being supportive around grief. You know, my best friend, Maya, she came over and took my mom's medical record and just called all the doctors and told them that she had died. 
like you, I made many phone calls with my dad, many phone calls with my mom. They were so painful, you know, because particularly with my mom, I was surprising people who loved her with news and then sort of having to hold that with them. It was really hard, but to not have to make 25 to 40 phone calls, I never would have thought of, but I've never forgotten. Totally. My cousin who's younger than I was, my dad's, my dad was one of four. So the youngest guy's oldest daughter is right in between. So she's like 32. Anyway, she's a very close friend. And right after dad died, she said, I'm going to do the photos. I'm going to make photos for the funeral, send me everything. And she did it all. And it was just so, it's a little thing I wouldn't have thought of, but it yeah. was so wonderful to have these photo boards at the funeral. And we just forwarded it to her for like a week. Sometimes it's really concrete things. Yeah. That can be really helpful. The other thing that people did for me both times is they bought my children the clothes that they needed to wear to the funeral. That's nice. Yeah. One of them said, what sizes are they wearing and what, because that's the worst. I mean, to have to go to the, you know, soup department of some store and get blazers and all that with kids who are going to, you know, my kids were fighting me about it. And just tell me a little bit about parenting alongside this, because I still am stunned to discover that I am the person who's responsible for the three kids. Oh, I when, love that you say that. I'm like waiting for the parents to come home and they're 18. And always, yeah, I'm yeah. always waiting. Well, particularly when it came to the loss of my parents, it's a lot to navigate because you're still the kid. I mean, mm-hmm. you still look 18 to me. I still feel like we're in boarding school. Yeah. Even though there are times where I'm a very confident parent, I'm glad to be the parent. There are just as many times where I'm like, who left me in charge of this? I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm curious because I think if my children were here, I think they would tell you that they were not heartbroken, that they didn't feel like my parents were their primary grandparents. What was difficult about their experience was me and how difficult it was to see me. I had PTSD and ended up doing some inpatient work because I couldn't shake it. Mm -hmm. For you as a parent in those moments, like just tell me a little bit about what that was like. They were um, in ninth grade and seventh grade. We live a mile from my parents. So my parents were really actively involved in my kids' life. My son in particular, who was day school, used to walk from the, the, the bus stop as a a block from my parents' apartment. So he had keys and he used to walk there. Matt and I would play the how it could have been worse game all the time. Mm-hmm. His dad could have been dying when my dad died. That would have been really bad. We went there like three days a week. I think they were really struck by the loss for them personally. And Grace was away and it was a really hard way to start being away, but she was away. Wit was home. He's the only boy in that generation. He lost both his grandfathers. I think they were both really sad, but I also think they're really worried about us. I was so worried about them not worrying about us because I didn't want, that may be another reason I like held on so tightly for a first few months is because I just wanted to make sure everybody was okay. It's a big loss for a boy at the age of 13 or whatever. So I just tried to listen to them and both and let them know that it was okay to feel whatever you're feeling. We took Wit out for dinner, I don't know, dad died in November, January three of us it was like a Saturday night we had nothing to do we sat down and he said okay fine just tell me who died oh my god wow he has like real PTSD about this yeah and he wasn't joking like he had been worried all day I just really strove to have everything be as normal as possible yeah and to have them realize we weren't going anywhere they were going to be okay I think 
the combination of the two losses back to back that were really pretty unanticipated. My dad certainly was very rattling for them. You were able, I think, to do grief for yourself and also show up for your kids at the same time. I just think about the way that it can get overwhelming. When I was at the Cape, I was actually oddly staying. I don't know if you remember Dana, but he lives in my town. Okay. And he went to high school with us and he, his wife died of cancer in the house that we were staying in about 10 years before. It just goes to the point of how strange your brain is. I called him to tell him something about towels, even though my mom had just died. Yeah. And he was like, oh my God, Megan, you know, what can I do? And then he said, I don't know why I'm saying this to you, but I'm going to say it to you. You need to get a babysitter for your children immediately. And I was like, what? And he said, they are going to want to go back to summer vacation and ice cream and swimming, and you will hate them for it. Get a babysitter. I was sitting in the post office parking lot listening and was like, this feels really true. I think he was really cued into the, the difficulty I had between showing up sort of hundred percent for them as a parent and also needing to be the daughter who was just traumatized by this whole event. I mean, you mentioned it, which is another thing that is really standard in grief, which is we have this guilt and regret cycle. I think we manage the terrible outcome of someone's death by persistently wondering if there was one way we could have stopped it. Yeah. With my mom, you know, part of my PTSD was that I did know she was ill. I had taken her to the hospital the week before. I work in a hospital. I have some medical training. If anyone was going to know anything, it was going to be me. And at the time with the kids, it was really difficult to be in this sort of the tumble dry cycle of my own thoughts and feelings. They were like, mom, it's Friday. Can we go for ice cream? And I yelled at them. I yelled at them and the people on the beach heard me yell at them. And I was like, okay, we need to, we need to follow Dana's. I came to writing, which is what I think of as my greatest grief release was the rediscovering of writing in my life. I had not been writing lifelong. I really had stopped in high school, but came back to that. And you, and I've said this on other podcasts, but I put it up on the internet, just this tiny little thing about my mom and taking her to the hospital and missing her in that moment while sitting in the very, very lonely holidays at my in-laws in England. And you sent me a direct message. And that was the first real like, oh, this is, this is what we can do for each other. This is what people who know the native language of loss can do for each other. And it wasn't like we had otherwise been connected there. There was like a, you know, over a decade where we hadn't really talked to each other and it, it just picked up so quickly. And I think about that in grief and loss a lot, which is we feel so isolated, alone and lonely at different times, but it takes nothing for you to realize that there are people that know exactly what you're going through, that have lived already lived through some of the real nuggets and elements, because I think you were a year, I think it had been your dad's anniversary, 2019, yeah. right? Would that have been? He died in Thanksgiving of 2017. So okay. Yeah. 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 And I, I don't know. What is the number one thing people ask you? The number one thing people ask me for sure is book recommendations. 
book recommendations is that what they so it's interesting for like people who are grieving also actually in general but specifically so clients ask me which is really the tenant of this whole podcast what does it mean to grieve like other than crying how do I get through this process kind of as quickly and efficiently as possible and what I describe to them is it's not a process it's a it's a person you have now become and you train up the muscles so that you can carry it and it won't always feel this way so that I was gonna say, I don't think the goal, I don't know where I came up with this, but the goal is not to get through it, but or to get over it, get past it, right? I mean, I think the goal is to not cry every single day in a, in a way that gets in the way of my life. But how do you internalize this? Because this is now part of who I am. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. I mean, the metaphor that works for people that I use most often is to say, you know, I also was not a mother until I had Lucy. And nobody ever said to me, when are you ever going to go back to normal? Like I've never slept the same since I had a child, everything about my social life, everything about my work life, how I ate, how I slept, every, every cell of my being changed. And the early days, the first year is brutal. And to me, that's what you grow into being a mother. And yeah, you know what, when I had another kid and another kid, it was still traumatizing. It was still something to adjust to, but I knew I could, I knew I could do it because I had already done it, which is sort of how I feel about grieving, which is I will never not be a primary griever. You know, I've had lots of loss in my life. My mom's was by far the most profound, but you know, some of my early childhood experiences include loss. So I've never been confused about whether or not it's something that someone could live through. But for me losing my mom, it, that's like, I moved into a new house you know, I don't, I don't live my life the same, um, on account of the loss of her. And some of that is good. And some of that is bad. I mean, some of, some of that, I don't mean bad, but I mean, some of it is less and some of it is, you know, there are things that people ask me to do or want me to contribute to, or want my opinion on. And I don't care in the same way that I used to. So I don't show up. And I've had some friendships that I've lost on account of that, or have shifted and changed. Some of the work that I do has shifted and changed. But that's how I think about it. I think about it as like becoming a parent, which is I'm never going to not be a parent ever yeah, again. Yeah. That's the drill. That's the way that it is. Something I say all the time to link these two is that I thought becoming a parent made you an adult. And it was only after dad died that I realized it was losing a parent. Yeah. I've really felt like an adult in a way I never did before. Yeah. I mean, cause you're up next, you know, there's nobody to check with. I have an older brother who is more of a dad in the way that like you ask advice and you get support from when my dad died. I think I was looking more out towards the rest of the family and what the loss of him was going to mean for the rest of the family. My mom has been much more of a, Oh my God, how do I live my life every day without this person who I spoke to pretty much every day. And when I look around my life, I mean, it was very interesting when I came back to my house, I was like, do I like this house or did I make this house because she would like this house? I mean, that's how stitched she is into, you know, just the, the decisions in my life and, and her, the level of influence. And so I think that's another thing that I talk to grievers about a lot is, you know, I lost my dad, you lost your dad. Those are just the names of the relationships, the way in which that person was attached to me is going to impact the way that it feels. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's possible for people to lose a cousin and have that be more significant than mom, obviously. 
people do ask me about books and a lot of people that want to jump into my writer's workshop, you know, two weeks after they lose their mom and, and, or their person, what I say to folks is give, give your brain like four months because reading can be really difficult. The cognition can be really difficult. After my mom died, I did read a ton. I read, I think I told you 88 books on grief and loss, mostly because I've trained in this for two decades and have a couple of master's degrees and was really stunned by what I didn't already know. You know, I didn't speak native, native Portuguese. I also think the books are as good as they are bad. They, yeah. they are just as many books that I threw across the room and was sort of like, fuck you, fuck you for saying that. Like, you know, there was one book that someone gave me that was all about like this, the woman, she saw a butterfly and knew it was her sister. And then the whole book is about how like her sister comes back as a butterfly. And I was like, fuck you. My dad would never come back as a butterfly. Like he might come back as like a hurricane, but yeah. he's not coming back as a butterfly. That's so the books are tricky. Do you have books that you love? Are there ones? I mean, you gave me book recommendations just as the reader that I don't have specific reading books. I always recommend devotion, which I know I recommended to you. Yeah. And by uh, Dan Shapiro. And I always recommend Mary Oliver poetry. Yeah. Perfect. I don't have specific. I, just, I have a client who just lost her dad. And then I have another client who just lost his father. These are people I know professionally, like not particularly mm -hmm. well. I both emailed me last week asking for book recommendations. So those are so on my website, just so you know, are of the 80 books that I threw across the room, I don't trash them because people mean well. Yeah. I um, and and I believe the book that I would give my mother is not the same book that I would give someone art. Right. But there's another poet, Jan Richardson, who is alive and young, and her poetry is also a, a lot about loss in general. And she runs workshops. So I often recommend that to people who are poetry inclined. I find that there are a number of people who are like, oh, I hate poetry. I know. Kelly Corrigan wrote a book yeah, called Tell Me More, which is about losing her dad and her um, best friend at the same time to cancer. And that book, I can't even tell you how many times I have picked it up and just read bits of it. But pretty much everything about Kelly Corrigan, I feel like is genuine and real. And, you know, you just feel like, she's there to talk to you about her life. So she's got a podcast that I love and she's got TV that I love. I'll tell and, you a quick story about her. I met her. Oh, did um, you? Yeah, I've met her a few times. We have mutual friends. And I went to a reading when Tell Me Work came out and it was like, my dad had recently died. And yeah. I went to the reading, I sat in the front and at the end I went up to her and I said, my dad just died. And I started crying. And she just hugged me in the whole room. There was like 50 people in her, I mean, because I started reading her with the middle place. And then when Greeny actually died, I was like, oh my God. I, again, I think she gives a voice that I find really relatable. She's got siblings. Yeah. And she does, yeah. when she talks about her mom, she puts on this voice that makes her mom sound like my mom. Yeah. So I think that's the key is like finding the people that feel relatable to you. Yeah. yeah. There are two books that I love that are more like clinical. One is, is called It's Okay, You're Not Okay. okay. It's by named Megan Devine. Okay. And that book is the tone of it is a really, it's just sort of like, yeah, it's a shit show. Here's what you need to know about the things. And, you know, any book that I read, I'm not, I, and in Megan's too, I'm not like, oh, I think every one of these pieces is totally accurate, but the tone of it is very encouraging. Like you're going to get through this. Yeah. There's another book by a woman named Hope Edelman, which is called After Grief, okay. which is a more like clinically inclined 
It gives a lot of, this is why we don't wear black morning clothing anymore. She's done a lot of research to talk about loss in general. And then she tells you about people that she interviewed 25 years ago when they lost a parent and then what it's like now. So is that helpful? I guess I actually, I mean, I do, I think it's really helpful. She lost her mom really young. She wrote a book called Motherless Daughter. She's just a super relatable person. And what's neat about books is that you can now find videos of people and hear them talking. So those are the three books that I tend to sort of say, like, go find them, pick them up, see which one speaks to you the most. But I also generally say to folks, reading is not necessarily the thing. Those of us academic minds that go straight to books. Reading is not, and and this is a woman who read 88 books. It's not necessarily the thing. And when we're talking about grief, you know, going and pulling out your your old watercolors, the poems that you loved from when you were first falling in love, you know, anything that you do that evokes feeling to do that with your loss and your loved one in mind are the kinds of things that I think of help process through energy, help help move. I sang a lot when I was in high school. And after my dad died, I sang again. And actually crazily, the extra high school choir tour happened again in Italy. They put to, they put the choir back together. And I was like, oh my God, the band's back together. And I ended up being able to sing with the choir again in Italy wow. the summer after my dad died. I know it was really amazing, but being able to, to go back to the things that you have always done out of place of intense emotion. Mm-hmm. And allowing those to also be grief, I think is really good. But you can always send people to my website if that's helpful. Because I also put podcasts on there. And I do think Mm -hmm. there are some really great, great podcasts where people are doing what we're doing, which is just, you know, talking about grief and loss. Let me ask you one more question before I let you go. Has there been anything that has been a new addition? Something that you feel like, has grown out of the loss that you and Matt have both experienced that maybe was not there before. I would tell you that our trip out West during COVID was absolutely 100% informed by my general, what the fuck does anything matter anymore anyway? Mm -hmm. You know, there were a lot of people that were really worried about school and their kids and getting an education. And I was like, I don't care. I don't want to sit still while the world shuts down let's put the kids in a van. We were supposed to see the national monuments. Let's go. That, that whole tenor is not me. I am much more anxious. I am much more planned and I'm still learning whether that's going to stay me. I mm-hmm. still, I'm like, whatever. And whatever, not the way I am normally. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. I don't know that I, sorry to disappoint. If anything, I felt more myself and more the like I think as I get older I was already relating much more to my dad and his passing has only made that so more true so no I mean I think that certainly his death makes me aware that anything can change at any time and so there is no point in delaying things that you want to do and that we should say what we want as a closing note I will say one of the things that Matt and I reflected on a ton is that Neither of us felt we had anything unsaid with our dads. Mm. Like we were so fortunate that they both knew that we loved them, both of us, and we knew they loved us. And I feel so grateful for that because when somebody dies, especially like that on a Sunday afternoon, I don't think you can take that for granted. And so 
for me, one of the lessons, and this is not new since dad's death, although I feel new conviction around it, is just say what you want to say. Like, don't put it off. You don't know if you'll get the chance. So I guess I'd say that. I don't know if this will last. So I don't know that the concept is that's what should or shouldn't happen, but people people tell me things. And part of what I hear is what you just said, which is like, I'm more myself than ever before, that even with this tragic event, my compass points have stayed true and the same, which Mm -hmm. that sort of sounds like what you're describing. And I do think the idea that you can hold on to, there was nothing left unsaid between us. There was, when my dad was dying, I brought two of my three kids, the two that I thought could really be present to the hospital where he was, you know, sort of recuperating before we took him home for hospice. And it was his 80th birthday. And I I said to them, you may not see Papa again, which maybe they thought I meant until you see him again. But I was like, make sure to say, I love you and go and give him a hug and a kiss. And so when he died, I was able to say to them, you remember the last thing you said was, I love you. You remember the last thing you did was hug him. I mean, I knew in that moment that that was, that that was what they were doing. And that that was sort of like a gift to them and a gift to him and a gift to me. Because I think the last thing that my mom said to me was get your fucking dog out of here. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> she was like down and I was going to be leaving the house. And I'm pretty sure that was the last thing that she said to me. I love you in a different way. You would have loved it. I mean, my mom had a very spicy sense of humor and I think she would have thought that was very funny that she yeah. made some sort of snarky remark. I am really, really grateful for this Thank conversation. You. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh-huh. I look forward to listening. If people want to find you, they can go to a design, design so fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. All right, Lindsay. Thank you.